Now, last week as we started chapter 2, because we're going to finish it today, what we looked at is how grace is the great equalizer of humanity. It's the thing that chops everybody down at their knees and makes them realize they're on the same level. They all have the same need for a God who loves them, that, that they should look at each other as, as being equal. It should be the unifier of God's people. This week, we're going to follow up on the story of Paul confronting Peter and Barnabas. You guys remember that last week. If you weren't here, you can quickly read as I'm talking through the previous, like, five verses. And he confronted them because they chose the side of the Judaizers, the legalistic people, the religious people who were looking down upon the Gentiles, the people that they were trying to get them to change their heart toward the Gentiles and have grace for these guys. And yet they chose to still spend time, to eat dinner, to hang out with those people rather than with the people that they'd been trying to reach, the people that they were wanting to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to, to the rest of the world. Can you imagine that on a Sunday morning that we choose to sit by those people who we know best and make us feel most comfortable? That'd be ridiculous, huh? That when we have a a potluck or a celebration or a feast and we go sit at a table, that we sit at a table with the people that we know the best and we're the most comfortable around and we avoid the people that make us uncomfortable. Like, that would be a segregated church, wouldn't it? That's just nuts to think that we would be so segregated within in in our church. And yet that's what Peter and Barnabas had chosen to do. They, looked, they chose the people that were looking down upon the Gentiles because those guys weren't living by the law, in a sense. And after Peter, Paul confronts Peter and Barnabas, who, who knew better because they'd experienced the grace of God, Paul gives this what I believe is a great exhortation uh, to back God's truth as to what he's been fighting for. And so in Galatians chapter 2, I'm going to read uh, verses 14, like it's going to go all the way through 21. We'll, we'll intermingle with the scriptures here. But if you have the word of God, read it with me. But when I saw that they were not straightforward, that means Peter and Barnabas weren't straightforward about the truth of the gospel. They weren't bold in it. They allowed the fear of man to, to take them away from the truth of gospel of the gospel. I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew have lived in the manner of Gentiles, meaning he had the freedom to live like the Gentiles lived, he could eat with them, he could do those sorts of things when he was with them, but not as the Jews. So, like, he could, he could be in their manner, but when the Jews are there, you're, what you're doing is showing by choosing them that you're compelling the Gentiles to think we're not good enough, so then we must have to start living and acting like a Jew in order to be accepted like the Jews are, the rest of the Jews are accepted. And he says, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? That's not what this is about. Verse 15, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, now he's not saying that the Gentiles are sinners and the Jews aren't, What he's trying to get across is like, you know what, you guys think, oh, we're Jews by nature and and we don't have these same sins as these dirty sinners called Gentiles. Knowing that a man is not justified, you guys know this, by the works of the law, everybody say the works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified, everybody say justified, 
by faith in Christ. Say faith. There, there's three key words here, justified, faith, and works. And not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Verse 17, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? What is he saying there? Sometimes it's a confusing verse when people are reading through there. What he's trying to say, like, sarcastically, if we live with the freedom of the Gentiles and people look as, at us as sinners and they think that we're sinners because we're living in that freedom, do you think that Christ, therefore, is a minister of sin? And if you know the book of Romans, he would say, no, that's not the case at all, right? In fact, he says, certainly not. Verse 18, for if I build again... Those things which I destroyed, all these legalistic ideas in my head, all these methods of measurement that I used to try and show how good I was in life, how successful I was, how righteous I was. If I build those things again, once I've been set free from those things, I make myself a transgressor. Now, you might notice that, that Paul is kind of going into this compare and contrast argument in these verses. In one corner, we have the law, meaning God's word in the Old Testament. And even more specifically, he says the works. Everybody say the works. The works of the law. This is the belief that in order to be saved, that you must work the law, you must fulfill the law, that, that you've got to do good accordingly. In the other corner, we have faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you look through those verses in the New King James, this says faith in Jesus, faith in Christ, faith in the Son of God. This is the belief that, of course, what we believe, in order to be saved, you must confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's the idea of what we need to believe. That belief is having faith that Jesus Christ left heaven, descended to earth. He lived life. He fulfilled the law perfectly, that he died on a cross, was buried and resurrected on the third day, and that when he ascended into heaven, then he sent the Holy Spirit down to be with mankind. Faith in Jesus Christ, nothing else required. That's what he's arguing here. These are the two contrasts that he's making. We have to be careful, though, not to misunderstand the argument because this isn't about law versus faith. Hear me. A lot of people think this is simply an argument he's making about the law versus faith. That's not the argument that's being made. What he's making is an argument about the works of the law versus faith in Christ. The works of the law versus faith in Christ. It's important in the context of what people all around the world are celebrating this weekend. If you don't know, or if you haven't heard, which it was announced, people all around the world are celebrating what they think is one of two religious holidays, which ultimately is one holiday. If you're an Orthodox Jew, traditional Jew, if you're a Messianic Jew or even some Christians like what we're doing after church today, you're celebrating the Feast of Shavuot, which is the Feast of Weeks, and I'll go into what that means. And then the Feast of Weeks was translated in the New Testament as the Day of Pentecost. And so they're one and the same. But people, all churches, Christians all around the world are celebrating one of those two things, if not both of those things, in some churches today. 
And believe it or not, those two things go right along with what I'm talking about when we're discovering what Paul was debating in the word. The works of the law versus faith in Jesus Christ. The Hebrew feast Shavuot is the celebration. Listen to this. It's the celebration of when the Israelites walked through the Red Sea. They came to the the bottom of the mountain and they met God for the first time. And God presented to them that he wanted them to be his people. He presented what was considered a marriage covenant. And then he gave them that covenant, which is his word. And they said, yes. He said, will you marry me? And he, he gives this description of what that would look like. And the people say, yes. And so then in order to seal the commitment between God and his chosen people, he gave them a gift. Now, I preached on the idea of what that gift means about a year ago. And the idea of the gift is what we would consider a wedding ring that seals the deal, right? It should seal the deal. It's the idea we have of what it means to seal the deal. When you get engaged, you give the wedding ring. And then you give the, the rest of it when you actually get married, right? That's the sealing the deal. What did God give? He gave to his chosen people his written word. Now, we call it the law. The Bible calls it the law. But ultimately, God's word is not a bad thing. His, his word is never a bad thing. And so, though impossible for man to fulfill, the intent of God giving his people the law was actually good. We can't forget that, even in the argument that Paul's making right now. And so what I want to bring across to you, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, it says this, What great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments? Does that sound like a bad thing? As are in all this law, which I set before you this day. This is the Lord speaking. There's no other nation that has been given such righteous judgments as what I set before you today. Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself. Take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, the things of the Lord, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Teach them to your children and your grandchildren. Does that sound like bad things? No, he wouldn't tell you to teach them to the generation next to you and the generation after that. He says, especially concerning the day that you stood before the Lord, your God, in Horeb, when the Lord said to me. He's like, remember this day. Teach your kids about this day. This is the day that you chose to become my bride. Listen, the the Lord says, when the Lord said to me, gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me, have that great respect, all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. Do you know even the Apostle Paul, who you think might be arguing against the law, writes positively in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. He says, he's talking about the law to, to Timothy, and he says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. In Romans chapter 7, arguably one of the greatest arguments that Paul puts forth in Scripture, 
He describes the law in verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. That doesn't sound good, does it? Because it was, uh, they were in the flesh, their sinful passions were aroused by the law. That doesn't sound like a good thing. Why is he saying that? Because the law also by its righteousness, the righteousness of God, pointed out sin in mankind's life. Like, we might think that's a bad thing, but ultimately that's a good thing, right? That we would be aware of what sin actually is. Because had that standard, the righteous standard of God, not been presented before mankind, we all judge on our own, don't we? And ultimately, man judges in their own favor all the time. Because if it was up to us to determine what was good, we would look at somebody else and we would think, well, I might not be as good as that person, but I'm definitely better than that person. And so according to my standards, I'm good because they're worse. And we do that in in every aspect of life. And so if it was up to us to determine what was really sin and wrong, we would always turn things in our favor. But God wanted them to understand what a holy and righteous God really is. And that by his standard, no man can attain that set of righteousness, that standard, and therefore presented a need for a savior, someone who could help us become righteous in his eyes. In verses 10 through 12 of Romans chapter 7, it says, And the commandment, that that law, which was to bring life, everybody say life, what was its original intent? To bring life. Paul says, I found it to bring death for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it, it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Now, if you continue reading in Romans 7, verses 13, 14, 15, you'll see how Paul brings this around. What I want you to see in this is Paul almost makes it seem like there's a contradiction with his view of the law. But it's not really a contradiction because, like I said, the law brought death to him, to his flesh, to who he was. It may be viewed as a bad thing, but really it's a good thing because it allowed him to put himself to death that he might have a new life in Christ, right? And so what he's trying to do in chapter 7, he's going back and forth, is show the intent of the law, but how man struggles with the law. He's describing the challenge of the law, but that it can be both life and death, that it can lead to fruitfulness, and yet it points out our sin and our failures. Ultimately, it points to the need of a Savior. Here's what I want us to understand before I really even get into this argument. What we're celebrating with Shavuot is the goodness of the Lord. That's why they pass out the, the honey, right, the, the bit of honey, because much of the Old Testament describes the law, and David would talk about the law as being sweet, as being something that is good. And therefore, we have to understand God's intent when he set this before his people and he said, I want you to be my people, is he laid out a way. And that way was a gracious way. If you will follow this way, you and your children and your children's children, your generations will be blessed. Is that not right? If you go by the way and you follow this way, you're going to have a blessed life. 
Now, if you go against this way, once you've accepted this covenant that I want to make with you, then there will be a curse that comes upon your life because when you do bad things, there is a repercussion for the sins that you commit in life. But so the people accept it like, yeah, I want to have the way of life. I want to get to that promised land that's milk and honey. I want to have those blessings in my life. Of course, we can see the good things. But throughout time, what did man do? They picked up the railroad track one by one that God had laid down for them to travel on and they turned it into a ladder and they built a ladder that ascended up to heaven hoping that would become the method of measurement that they could then use in order to attain some sort of salvation and righteousness with God that they could therefore judge others by and that's why God would look down you've turned my method of grace you've turned the way into something that it was never meant to be it was meant to be life for you but you have caused it to be death to people's lives you've strangled them with what I meant with what for what was for was good and so therefore there's a need for me to cause Jesus to to descend down to earth and rip that ladder apart and throw it back down on the ground and that's the pivot point with mankind this is exactly why we find that Jesus Jesus's life was perfect that he died and that he was resurrected that in this Paul says came the idea of justification everybody say justification Galatians 2 16 he writes knowing that a man is not justified say justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified, say justified, by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be. What does that word justified mean? In the original language, it means to render righteous. You've been made right. You've been accepted. To render righteous. It's a declaration to declare, to pronounce one to be righteous. Now, yes, as I heard a few people say, the idea of justified that people will often relate to or refer to justified just as if I'd never sinned. But I want you to hear a little bit more to it than that. It's the idea that you did things wrong in life. Is there anybody here that hasn't done anything wrong in life? That you have done some things wrong in life. And that in doing those things that were wrong, you are completely guilty in those things. There's no excuse. You can't blame it on your parents. You can't blame it on somebody that upsets you and you just reacted. You can't blame it on a mean person. You can't blame it on anything else. You did things wrong in life, and you are completely guilty. You know that. And charges are brought against you to prove that you are guilty. And then as charges are brought against you, the evidence of you doing something wrong is, is out there. Like it's, it's pointing directly at you. Here's the evidence that's laid before you. Every bit of it points that what you did was 
wrong. And yet, after hearing the case of all the things that you've done wrong and all of the evidence points at the fact that you made bad choices, that you sinned, that you did wrong, the judge looks at you and he in one swift act, he declares you righteous. Now you thought that you were facing the death penalty. Like what I did was wrong. I know that it points at me. I know that I'm the one that made the decision. Everything I've done is wrong. I deserve hell for what I did. And I know that when it comes down to it and he slams his gavel, that I'm put to death for what I did. Does all of us understand that? And yet when he goes to slam the gavel, instead of hearing that we're going to be put to death, he says, I declare you righteous. Now, if you really fully understand that, it's incomprehensible. It doesn't make sense that a holy God would look at you and look at me and point and say, not guilty, righteous, right before me, peace with me, that he would look at us and say that we are accepted by him. And it definitely wasn't because you followed the law. Because you didn't, and you know you didn't. How good of a God is that? We know that we've messed up. And this isn't a progressive justification. I want you to understand that. It isn't something that's worked out over time. That when I accept what Jesus did on the cross for me, that it is one swift act that through, by grace, through faith, I have been justified. Not because of how good I am. Not because I'm anybody special. Because God sent his son to die on the cross for me. All of this was known beforehand. That's why God would leave heaven, come to earth in the form of a man named Jesus that he followed the law for you. Where you broke the law, he said, you know what, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to fulfill that law. Just to make a point. Where you've messed up, where you've done things wrong, Jesus fulfilled the law for you. So that he could stand before the judge and say, you know what, yeah, they, they weren't able to quite do it, but it's okay because I did it for them. Do you understand that? You know what, Corey can't drive 65. But I came down to earth and I drove 65 for him. Corey, when he blows his top sometimes, his anger leads to sin. But you know what? I came down so that I could do, handle that situation for him. When things don't go right, sometimes words come out of his mouth that shouldn't be said. And so I came to earth, judge, so that I could answer for him. And since Jesus took my place and fulfilled the law for me, then he also took the punishment that I deserved. Because what I did, I should have been put to death. But Jesus says, you know what? I came and fulfilled those laws that you guys broke for you. 
and it doesn't just stop there. I'm going to take all y'all's punishment because I want you to be free. And the judge looks at what Jesus did rather than what we did. And he says, justified once and for all. Jesus would ascend back into heaven, having made a new way for God to have a chosen people once again. But do the chosen really understand who they are? What is their identity? And Jesus, in doing all of that, he made a new commitment that was also sealed by the giving of a gift. And what was that gift? It was the fulfillment of Acts chapter 2, that gift that sealed the commitment to man through what Jesus accomplished was God pouring out his spirit upon all who would receive what Jesus accomplished on their behalf. The pouring out of his spirit, the filling up of his, his people with his presence Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, the day that we celebrate the launching of the church, the launching of the new covenant, the launching of God's commitment to a new chosen people, people who will follow after Jesus. And that spirit would then guide our lives by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's Paul's argument. Why would you ever want to put your faith in the law again? And anything else again. That's Paul's whole point in this. Paul gave his entire life in trying to be good before God. You guys know that. When he was before Paul Saul and he was living after the law, he gave everything to try to be as good as he could before God. He was following the law exactly like he believed that he should. Even when he was persecuting the church and killing Christians. You know why he was doing that? We might look at that and think, you know what? That was really bad. But you know that in Paul's mind, he tried to justify himself like the rest of us do. And he was doing it out of a zealousness, out of a zealousness for the truth that he believed because he thought Christians were undercutting the whole Old Testament law. In that, he was still trying to be as good as he could be. But he realized when he came to Jesus Christ in faith, there was this fact that even the best things that he had done in life paled in comparison to life in Christ. He looked at everything that he accomplished pre-Jesus, and he literally says, I count them as loss. They mean nothing to me. He actually says, dung, like all of that stuff before, is crap. That's exactly what he's saying. It means nothing. Nothing to, nothing to Jesus, nothing to the world, nothing to me. It was absolutely worthless to try and be good. For all that I accomplished and all of my excesses, it is dung. It's a waste. If we could all have that same mindset and understand for all of our worldly success, it's really a waste. The fact that a bunch of hippies could reach more people than a religious church in the late 60s should show us all that they had attained 
in their righteousness didn't attain the gospel getting to millions of people in our country in that time frame. Listen, Paul realized that it wasn't just the things he had associated with wickedness that were done, but it was his goodness that was also done. Not just the things you think are bad, but the things that he thought were also good, the things that he accomplished. It was nowhere near what it would be, what would be necessary to be in the presence of a holy God. And Paul now knows the only way to live is by faith in Christ. The works of the law, justification, and faith in Christ. In Galatians 2.19, he says, For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Like, that's where the old man comes in. That's where the idea that, that we are not the same people once we've surrendered our lives to Christ, that there has to be a transition. There's, there's a difference between the old you and the new you, that, that, there, that people will see, oh, that's not the old whoever you are. That's not the old Corey that he used to be. Right? That's not the old Jim that he used to be. That's not the old Daryl that he used to be. That's not the old Amy that she used to be. Like people will see there was an old you and there is a new you. That's this whole idea right here. That the old you is dead. Now that he's dead, now that you're dead, now that she's dead, you've got to figure out what's your new identity. Because that becomes the biggest battle. If you died, then who is the new you? It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Everybody say, in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. He's throwing that in there because that doesn't mean we have a license to sin, back what we talked about two weeks ago. Like, I'm not taking advantage of the grace of God. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Listen, a Christian is not a person who believes in his head the teachings of the Bible. That's not a Christian. Now, Christians believe in the teachings of the Bible. But there's a lot of people who could believe in the teachings of the Bible and still not have Christ in their lives. I think about sometimes what we have this tendency to do once we come to Christ is, is we think that we got to learn all of the teachings of the Bible and we get all of these things inside of us, right? And then we get these things inside of us and then we have these disciplines of the faith and we start doing the disciplines of the faith and reading our Bible and we begin to pray and we begin to do all these things and, and pretty soon what our life develops into is do, do, dung. Because we've essentially turned our faith into works. And if we're not careful, we begin to worship Christianity rather than the Christ of Christianity. Just because we came forward and we repeated a prayer and now we're doing the works does not mean that we're Christians. 
A Christian is a person who has died with Christ, whose stiff neck has been broken, whose brazen forehead has been shattered, whose stony heart has been crushed, whose pride has been slain, and whose life is now mastered by a Lord. And his name is Jesus Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The new identity in Christ. Right? The old Paul, when he says this, it's no longer him who lives. The zealously law-abiding Jew no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. I want you to hear this. It's, it goes beyond understanding to some degree. It's the mystery of salvation, if you would. Like, you might think uneducated people would believe such. There's people that think, like, that's for uneducated people to think something like that. It's no longer you that lives, but Christ lives in you. Like, what in the world does that mean? I want you to understand that Paul is probably one of the most educated people of his time. One of the most educated people in the faith at the time. If he were here today with the knowledge that he had 2,000 years ago, he'd still be smarter than most of us, if not all of us. Being an educated man, Paul still has this view. It is no longer me, but Jesus that lives in me. I heard this story once about a, a famous lady who was visiting an old people's home. Is that politically correct? I don't want to say necessarily nursing, assisted living, what you want to call it. It's where old people are. And this famous lady is going from room to room, and she's meeting people who had lived there a long time. One old lady, when she met her, she showed no sign of recognizing who this lady was. So she's shaking hands with her, and it wasn't like a big deal to her. And so the famous lady looks down at her and she says, do you know who I am? And the old lady replies, no, dear, but I would ask the nurse if I were you. She usually knows. <laughs> it might seem a little odd that someone wouldn't know who they are, but this is the life of, of people who have suffered, right, severe memory loss. People suffered even a loss of a spouse. They, they lose their identity. Somebody who suffered the loss of, of someone they love. So they suffered the loss of, of even like a limb. They can lose their identity. Somebody who's suffered the loss of their health can lose their identity. It typically involves the loss of your identity, right? And so when you lose your identity in any sort of loss, even if it's the old person, the old, not old people, I'm talking the old you, there's a loss. And then the challenge of reconstructing a new you. And this is exactly what Paul is describing when somebody leaves a works-based mindset. You know that every other religion is a works-based religion. The biggest battle they may face is accepting their new identity of faith in Jesus as Christ is in them. Christ in you, what does that really mean? Think about it. Think about it. What does it mean that Christ is in you? What Jesus did for you once and for all. But does that mean that he is done with you? No. Because get this. Jesus is still living. And that means he's still living in you. What if 
the Christian life is not about you living for Christ as much as it is that it's about Christ living for you, Christ living through you, Christ living in you. I was talking to someone the other day, and, and I had this, this thought that I didn't want to throw out in my sermon at the end in case it throws people off. But I'm going to use it anyways. It's, it's, it's no longer about, like, the works of faith. It's about allowing faith to work in us. Right? That's what this is about. Christ working in you, allowing him to work in you moment by moment, day by day with his indwelling presence, and you are trusting in him by faith at every single second. I want to close with this story is about a man. His name was Ian Thomas. Uh, Ian Thomas died in 2007, but he was the leader of an organization called InterVarsity Faith uh, Fellowship. And this organization was an organization that was put together uh, years ago that reached into universities. I don't know what their intent is nowadays, because oftentimes when a founder dies and the world becomes liberal, the organization becomes liberal. The original intent, though, was to present Christ into all universities and colleges. It started in Britain, but it, it literally spread all across you know, the United States and in different places. So he was working to advance the Christian faith in universities. How many know that's a challenge? It was then. It'd be more so today. And he also, at the same time, was working in the slums in London. And he gives this testimony about a time in his spiritual journey when he'd been reduced to a state of complete exhaustion spiritually to the extent that he wished to really no longer go on in life. And then he says in his testimony that one night in November, just at midnight, I got down on my knees before God, and I wept in sheer despair. I said, oh God, I know that I am saved. I love Jesus Christ. I'm perfectly convinced that I am converted. With all of my heart, I've wanted to serve you. I've tried to my uttermost and I am a hopeless failure. That night, something happened. And he says these words, I can honestly say that I had never once heard from the lips of men the message that came to me then. But God that night simply focused upon me, the Bible message of Christ, who is my life. The Lord seemed to make plain to me that night through my tears of bitterness when he said, you see, for seven years, with utmost sincerity, you've been trying to live for me on my behalf, the life that I have been awaiting for seven years to live through you. This is the key. It's faith, not just in Christ who died 2,000 years ago on your behalf, but it is the faith in Christ who lives and dwells in you right now he is the new you he is with the new you he's here to give you every single thing you need to live out the christian life today and tomorrow and the next day and the day after that it is faith in jesus christ the son of god
believing in him and him in you every single moment. Let's pray. Father, I, I just ask that you would allow the words that were spoken not to be my words, but that your word would speak to every one of our hearts today. Lord, I just pray for that same passion that Paul had for what you did for us to bring justification what it means to be justified. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter the things that we've said, the hurts that we've caused, the hurts that we've even felt. None of the past matters. Not even for a murderer like Paul, but when he accepted you, you said justified. Lord, I pray that we would grasp that, that it, it would crush our hearts smash our foreheads, destroy our pride, to surrender to someone so great as you. That this life, it's not a game, but this is about you. And Lord, that you would stir up a passion inside of us to really know what it means to be a new creation with you in us. It's not about what we work, the good works. It's about you working good in us. Captivate us and move us. Transform us, Lord. I beg of you, God, do something in people's hearts and in my heart today. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.